Welcome to Offshore Explorer. I'm your host, Scott Dodgson. We talk a lot about um, equipment. There's a lot of other podcasts that kind of go into detail about different things, sails and boats and technical stuff and racing and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And it's all, I think, very entertaining and it's a great deal of knowledge. But one of the things that... I like to connect is how the mariner, sailor, and the people that admire sailing, wish to get into sailing, sail, have a certain framework, a sort of mental framework that has been passed down, whether they know it or not, throughout history. And it's important because it, it applies essentially to whatever country, whatever you do sailing. Because sailing and being a mariner is a sort of universal um, character and mental state. And I kind of wanted to address some of that because I think that the... Um, I think the world sort of needs to take a lesson from all the sailors out there um, to kind of get things uh, going on the right track. I know in this nation, the American U.S., there's a lot of talk about um, being victim. There's like this victim politics. And bear with me if you think it's going to be political. It's not really political. It's, It's just sort of what the reality is. But... Um, victim politics is, and I have traveled all over the world. I have been, I, I, I've been in Hungary. I've seen, I've seen how a dictator takes um, and uses people's sense of being a victim, and the sense that you know life isn't fair, um, and that's like, well, okay, tell me something new. Life is not fair, and allows these demagogues to stoke anger in people like they're not getting their their fair share and everything is stacked up against them. Well, you know what? Everything is stacked up against you. All right? All you can do is just get up and go to work. Do your best. Live your life. And that's essentially what, what we're talking about. We're talking about being able to get up off the floor after taking a hard punch and go on with your life. Now, uh, I've mentioned before that um, I've been working on a book and I've uncovered some amazing stories. And a story, actually a series of stories that um, I'd sort of like to bring to you today is about, uh, kind of begins with diving. And um, just as a note to you sailors out there, I think the one piece of kit that you should have on any boat, if you're cruising or going a long way, um, or especially, um, you know, if you're going to be in areas, I know like area off of South Florida, there's a lot of uh, lobster traps and, and, you know, nets and all sorts of stuff in the water. Having a um, scuba gear kit, um, I think, is really essential. Um, First of all, it's like a lot of fun. 
um, I've done, I did for years, I did dive charters, which required a great deal of patience and a great deal of endurance and strength. And that's kind of what brought me to the subject today. I have um, uh, I've gone through it, actually. I picked up a net and um, out literally in the middle of the ocean. And um, I had to go in the water. I didn't have any scuba gear. And I had to go down and snorkel it. And it was around my prop, which is fairly deep. And uh, the boat was bouncing up and down. I didn't have a weight belt or a PC to stabilize where I could sit in the water. So the boat would rise on the swell and come down and, and, you know, whacked me in the top of the head a couple of times. I'm lucky it didn't crack my skull um, because it was, it was pretty, pretty thumpy to say the least. Um, but it's, it's a good thing to have at least a tank, a regulator, you know, mask, um, a snorkel, because you, there's all sorts of stuff you could pick up. But I love doing the, I love diving, um, because it was, uh, just something great. People used to come to the boat and we've done everything from, from, I've done everything from diving in uh, the Red Sea looking at all the beautiful corals, swimming with dolphins, just magnificent place and and see all the different animal of wildlife just it's just absolutely breathtaking. But it's more like inside you sort of scrape away your world and go into that world and you realize that you know the world is is pretty predatorial and that's you know, that's the thing. You, If you feel like you're a victim, which is the theme of this podcast today, if you feel like that's the way you think, then then you will be a victim because you will not be a predator. And, I mean, that's these are extremes that I'm using. The language is an extreme point, but no one likes to be treated unfairly. And, and no one likes feeling like, you know, I've been screwed. It happens. Um, and it's, it's just unfortunate. And, but the, the key is what happens after you've been screwed. What do you do then? How do you take on the world? Right? Do you go and fall back? Who knows? But I wanted to tell a story that I discovered, um, some time ago. And it's, uh, a part of, uh, my new book. And um, where I take a look at uh, American Mariner and the sort of things that are contributing factors to the character of the American Mariner. And whether you know it or not, listener, no matter where you are in the world today, um, there is a connection. There is, there is a theme, a narrative line that goes between people's actions Mariner's actions and the history and and the tradition and this is what's this is an important thing and because the American 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 Mariner and Mariners in general have always been the through line regardless of what's going on in history they've always been the character that is uh, uh, be able to withstand a lot um, suffer hardship uh, keep on going. Um, was opportunistic, um, and had the opportunity of loving 
the sea and sailing um, beyond anything else. So a little bit, this is historical, and I hope hope regular listeners will appreciate this. And it's titled The Saki Barrel Divers. So in, in 1895, Japanese fishermen um, used to dive for uh, abalone. Now, if you don't know an abalone, it's a big snail, basically, with a big foot. Um, you've probably seen the shells. Um, they they kind of glitter. Um, they change color. Um, they use them for frets in a guitar. Um, they use them on pianos. They use them for a lot of different things. The shells are very are somewhat valuable, um, although plentiful. And but abalone is a delicacy uh, for uh, for the Japanese and for the Chinese. It's a big deal. And the waters of Southern California, from the Channel Islands, which are off of Santa Barbara, um, Catalina, um, all the way down to San Diego. All these islands uh, had a lot of abalone. So the spirit in which I'm doing this is there's a great deal of work and focus and, and adaptation because the one thing about a fisherman, who's also a sailor in my book, is that they bring a sense of faith to the endeavor. So together these traits of, of faith and hard work kind of are the central pillars of the citizens of the ocean. And because we're sort of in the, what I would call the middle chapters of nautical history, I mean, the thousands of years of nautical history, um, you know, we're, we're just a small little chapter in, in thousands of chapters. But the characteristics that I'm talking about, in you add certain tenacity. And the Japanese fishermen and sailor have really profoundly shaped uh, fishing, um, sailing, um, and a lot of nations in the world. And most people don't understand, but a sailor's knowledge is sort of transformative. Um, it's past... It's all passed on from one person to the other person. And they add stuff to it. And knowledge of techniques, sources, and practices, um, coupled with um, intuition and faith, are the sort of things that a fisherman needs to have to be successful. And this period of, like, turn of the century, 1895, 1900, um was a really important period because it set up one of the great economic booms of the United States at the time. And essentially the, the Japanese, they sailed down from the northern part um, of California and they, they started to, um, to dive in the Channel Islands, and they started to harvest abalone at the turn of the century. And when they did this, um, they had a great, there was a great deal of demand for it, because at the time, you have to understand that the railroad had just been built, essentially, and there were great populations of Chinese and Japanese who had been railroad workers who had settled in Los Angeles and San Francisco, 
Um, and they, they were a big part of the population. And in fact, if you took the uh, Japanese, Chinese, uh, black, um, Hispanic population together, they were the largest group in, in, in Los Angeles and in San Francisco. But the power was held by the white people, of course. But so anyway, they started to do these dive on Avalon. And first they started out as uh, free divers. And I've done this a couple of times. And they would, uh, they would uh, dive down from the surface. And, and then later, um, they used to use hard, they were hard hat divers. Um, and they used to use old wine, rice wine casks as uh, floats to rest on one after each dive. So they took a couple of deep breaths. They would dive to the bottom and they return to the surface with their, their snail. Basically, that's what an abalone is. And the abalone has a large foot, meaty foot. That's, that's the delicacy part. And they would, um, if you swoop down on top of them, you could scoop them right off. Um, but if they, they hear you coming or they see you coming or however they do it, sense that you're coming, um, what they'll do is, is they'll grasp onto that and then you need a bar to un, uh, pull them up. And today when you go, you can do a limited number, very, very limited number of abalone. Uh, there's a lot of restrictions on them because um, they're not an endangered species, but they are uh, fairly well uh, regulated. And you have to have a uh, metal uh, measuring stick so you can measure the, the uh, size of the shell because you can only take some, the larger ones and not the smaller ones. So in 1900, the county of Los Angeles passed um, a regulation that made it illegal to gather abalones from less than 20 feet of water. Now, this, this regulation was, was purely racist because they didn't want the Japanese um, benefiting from these abalone. They didn't care about whether there was abalone in there. And in fact, most of the Caucasian population didn't eat abalone because they didn't like it. So there was a lot of politics that were involved with it. Essentially, the Chinese commercial um, abalone operation was completely shut down. And the Japanese still sort of dominated uh, the abalone harvesting for a short time. And a newspaper article in the in the Los Angeles paper, the Los Angeles Times, I'll read it to you. Avalon, Catalina is up in arms. She's been invaded by Japan. A lot of little brown men with a small sloop appeared at Empire a few days since are proceeding to skin the rocks of abalones. These Japs are divers. They wear goggles with which they locate the abalone as they swim along the surface and making a spring, they emulate the hell diver and disappear into the wretch inoffensive, to wrench the inoffensive shellfish from its hold on the rock by a quick thrust of an iron bar. Practices made these men able to remain underwater for an inconceivable length of time, and they seem to be as much at home in and underwater as a shag, which I don't know what that is. And that's the LA Times in April 21st, 1903. 
it's very interesting to to point out the uh, the language and the way they refer to the Japanese divers. But the albacore was soon overfished, and one of the last camps that they had, because they used to bring the abalone up and they used to cut the foot out and then take the shell and let the shell dry out. And then it would shell, sell the shell for 40 cents uh, a ton. And those shells would go and they would be used for inlay, um, guitar frets, etc. And um, that's how they made, that's how they made money. But they got, uh, there was a lot of jealousy and what you have to understand is these are American citizens. These just weren't just Japanese that just sailed over from Japan. They did sail over from Japan, but they were all American citizens. So they had every right to do what they were doing. And um, the last little camp that they had was out at White Point, which is, um, if, you, if you look at a, a map, um, it's a really rocky point. There is, there is a sandy beach there. Um, it's at the end of the Pacific Palisades, right around the corner from what is L.A. Harbor today. And the police came down and they routed out the Japanese and they were all forced to, to leave. And they settled on Terminal Island in Los Angeles Harbor. They immediately shifted from uh, the abalone to a person and fishing for tuna. So they built these small rowboats. I mean, think about this for a second. When you start feeling sorry for yourself, these people just had their, their livelihood of, of diving for abalone, and they developed an entire system and technique on how to get it up, up and do it in a mass production sort of way. And, and then the, the government, the locals, say, no, you can't do that anymore. So they had to, like, pivot. And they didn't stop and just, you know, feel sorry for themselves and fade away. No, they ended up building a, uh, the population in Terminal Island was uh, increased to like 600 people. And, and it was a very tight-knit community living um, essentially um, by themselves on Terminal Island, which is literally in the middle of L.A. Harbor today. They developed their own sort of... Uh, uh, language, which is a blend of Japanese and English, called Kishuben. Um, it was a dialect from the Ki district in Wakayama, and, uh, which was where most of them had immigrated from in Japan. And then with the advent of small motors, motor boats, they, they decided to, they went out further. And they devised this technique, which they would, they would take live bait, like catch anchovies and sardines, put them in a net. They would drag the net along, okay, and they'd send a boat out to scout for schools of albacore tuna. And the albacore tuna would follow the live bait. And the description of how they did this is really quite remarkable because they do a little bit of it today as well. Um... They would release the bait and then spear the tuna using short bamboo poles with hooks while standing on steel walkways near the hulls and toss them onto the deck of the boat. Because the local fishermen were so good at this, the Japanese fishermen, there were several canneries that were open on Terminal Island. Now, 
think about this for a second. I know you've all heard of the Chicken of the Sea. Well, that was Van Camp, the company, and they were on Terminal Island, and they used to can chicken. Canning tuna was new, and it was fact invented. Um, very sh- there's a there's a few conversations about where it precisely was invented, but it really went into mass production um, on a Terminal Island where canneries popped up because of the Japanese fishermen's. Um, efficiency of of creating and, and catching these these fish so they were ended up and i'll move forward the los angeles herald reported that in august 4th 1920 there was a fisherman ba- battle and there was literally and people don't know this there was literally a war off the coast of los angeles between the japanese and the austrian fishermen and italian fishermen and a schooner called the Yamamoto was blown up and sunk, and its entire crew was killed. And they were looking for all the bodies, and they wanted to know what happened, and it was the Austrians. And they were hunting for the Austrians in these boats. And they, they went all over the fishing area outside of Los Angeles, from Channel Islands all the way down um, to San Diego. And there was there was a lot of um, murders that took place, and and battles that took place out between these fishermen. But the Japanese fishermen kept at it; um, they were not to be deterred. And this gets back to my theme: you know, don't feel sorry for yourself. Get out there and get it done. And that's what these people did. They went out there and they got it done. And these conflicts and the, the arguments and the deaths that occurred, these were huge news. This was huge news. And to, to put it into a kind of framework to, to, to really understand, these were Americans. And by the time... We get to like the 1930s and 1940s, there's almost 5,000 Japanese living on Terminal Island with a massive fishing fleet. And canned tuna has changed, literally changed the face of American cuisine. This is huge. This is a huge thing. And the first generation, okay, of, of fishermen gave way to the second generation. And they started um, what they were, the second generation Japanese are called the Nisei um, because they're born in America, not in Japan. And these are, you know, they're like regular worker kind of things, you know. They're out there fishing, family business, um, playing baseball. Uh, there's an elementary school um, that was named uh, for one of the teachers um, as as a sort of testament to the the goodness that they brought to the to the area, and the men would be working uh, on the boats, and they would be out for a while. They'd be out at Catalina, which is not very far from Los Angeles or the coast. Um, they'd be out at Santa Barbara Island, which is an absolutely beautiful island in the middle of nowhere. 
and um, it's still a big, big time fishing place. I've been out there a bunch of times and dove a bunch of times out there. And the women, the Japanese women, would um, they would have certain whistles that would blow from the factories when a new catch was coming in. So when the catch came in, the women the whistle would go, and the women would get dressed, and they would go. The, they would be the ones that would can the tuna. And if you've ever wondered how the tuna gets in a can, there's a couple of um, videos on YouTube to show exactly how they did it. I, it's part of the research for this, and I had never even thought about, okay, how do they get the, the tuna in the can? And watch the process, how it gets steamed and, and how they cut it up, how they shape it, how they put it in the can, how nothing is wasted. Um, it's all very efficient um, and very good. And, you know, who doesn't eat tuna? I mean, tuna sandwich, come on. It's a, it's a real staple. But these people, these people, it's kind of a stupid thing to say, but the Japanese people of Los Angeles had gone from Abalone to uh, Skipjack and Albacore and had set up a community of five or 6,000 people. And it should be mentioned that the fishermen also employed lots of other nationalities. Um, during the Depression... Um, there was uh, a lot of people that were working um, in 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 not only as fishermen, but you know, working. There was the payroll was like over a million dollars a month, which at the time was huge. And they had because of the industry of the Japanese, they had ended up creating enough jobs to hire lots of people during the depression when there were no jobs because people still had to eat fishing still had to get done and canned tuna happened to be the the thing that people could afford so it was in much in demand and there was close to um 20,000 people um working in the fishing industry and it was three yeah it was three quarters of a million dollars was the payroll and just in san pedro alone for fishermen. Um, that's a huge number. That's a huge number. And um, so then the industry itself really peaked during World War II. Um, and then it's sort of that they sort of overfished all the albacore in this area. And um, that essentially died. But that leads us into the second part of this wonderful story about the Japanese people in Los Angeles is that, and I, I, th I guess the thing is, is I should say it like this. When Pearl Harbor was bombed, they, um, they, the government interned all the Japanese and essentially what they did was dismantle a major fishing area fishing industry took all the boats and shipped all the Japanese to camps um, there's a few testimonials um, from a couple of American citizens that um, Frank Kuendo is uh, there's a there's a wonderful collection of these stories 
um, on the internet, said he was in 12th grade. And um, he was getting ready to graduate in 1942 when he heard, heard about Pearl Harbor and the attack by the Japanese. And I should also note, by the way, that the Pacific Fleet stayed in Los Angeles Harbor. The Japanese fishing fleet and the Pacific Fleet shared for 20, 30 years the harbor. All right. And they, they decided because of the way the Japanese were, were uh, expanding um, uh, the w- war with China and the United States was still sort of in the big stick thing still. So they took most of the battleships and the bigger ships and they put them out in Pearl Harbor. Those are the ones that got sunk, actually. But they used to they used to, to anchor right in Los Angeles Harbor. And there is still a battleship in Los Angeles Harbor as the Iowa as a um, tourist place, which is still pretty interesting. Um, but this this idea was is that people were living together. People were doing the right thing. Was there tension? I'm sure there was. But according to Frank, he had heard this on the radio, and he didn't really know what effect it would have on him. So he, he went to see a movie in San Pedro. He said he boarded a ferry boat that took him, normally took him to school every day. And upon docking in San Pedro, he was taken into custody with other Japanese Americans by armed soldiers. And they were put into a temporary barbed wire enclosure. I, he told them that he was an American citizen, but they stated they had orders to stop all Japanese. And after being detained for a few hours, he was told to return to the island, which he did. And then Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 that ultimately sent 120,000 Japanese Americans to internment camps. And within two days, Terminal Island residents were told they had 48 hours to prepare for relocation. And this place just, this was the end of, this was the end of the Japanese fishing, the Japanese industry, and all the rest of this kind of stuff. But I should note, Frank is a perfect example of this, that he went on to uh, be in the Air Force. And um, he went very high up in intelligence and um, served the country, retired, uh, achieved some medals. Um, and a lot of Japanese Americans did this. And they did this because they believed in this country. And they did this because they believed in themselves. And this gets back to listening to people talk about their victim then. You know, oh no, I can't do this. This, uh, you know, everything's stacked up. There's no opportunities and stuff. Well, you got to suck it up. You got to get up. And I think the American Mariner, the Mariner in general, has that ability to suffer, um, endure hardship, and come out on the other side much better for it. And I believe that this is a central characteristic of all Mariners, whether they're English or French, or Austrian, or South African, or whatever. Wherever you find a man on the sea or a woman on the sea, you're going to find that ability not to give up, not to feel sorry for themselves, 
but to continue on and make a uh, make something of what their life is and what they're doing. There's a very wonderful book by John Hawks. It's called Outer Bridge Reach. It's based on a true story, and I would recommend um, reading it. Um, it's a story um, about uh, solo sailing around the world, uh, the race at the time. I forget the specific um, sponsor for it. And the subject, the main character of the book, went and just dawdled around um, the Atlantic, the South Atlantic. And at the time, they didn't have GPS or whatever, so he was in touch with a ham radio operator. And he was giving false positions, and he ended up um, uh, committing suicide on the back of his boat. And his boat actually got caught up in the current and literally sailed and landed on an island in the Grenadines. And um, I remember being out in the Grenadines and having read this story, and um, they had, I saw the area where it had landed, and they were telling me, the local folks were telling me that um, um, they, had, they had gotten the boat out, um, you know, and, and, and destroyed it. Um, but it's a great story. It's about it's a great story about giving up, not giving up, what the alternatives are, feeling sorry for oneself, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. It's a, John Hawks is a wonderful writer, passed away, but just a super wonderful writer. So my this is my story for today, and I I hope that you kind of are getting what I'm talking about here about the American mariner, the sailor. I hope you uh, enjoyed this little historical uh, diatribe, I suppose, a little political stuff. Um, let me know what you think. Uh, if you go to offshoreexplorer.org, um, you can find all the podcasts on there. Um, you can leave me a note. I'll be happy to answer them if I can. Um, if there's more information that you have, I'd love to hear it. Um, a couple of things, please like, please share, always share. That's great. Um, we're growing a pretty good audience right now. And, um, I want to thank everybody for, you know, dropping in and telling us, um, the good things. I appreciate it very much. Um, the music, the opening music is by Paulette McWilliams. Um, her newest album uh, a woman's story is available wherever you get music um, this music that's underneath uh, is by tommy twang and if many many of you will know tommy uh we did we did uh we did a piece um not long ago um well actually quite a bit ago um where tommy was the feature um of the podcast and he is always doing something amazing but anyway, that's it for today. Thank you very much uh, for tuning in. Um, I hope you have some fair seas and fair winds. This is uh, Offshore Explorer out.